Why don't you join me for a word of prayer real fast? Father, it's simply impossible for one sermon on one topic to address all the needs in this room. God, we, uh, we know that there's a variety of needs. There's a variety of, of trials and burdens and griefs that come in here today. Um, and so God, I just pray that you would take over this place, Lord, that you would use your people, that you would use the worship, that you would use your word, you would use some sort of, uh, of element that's here today to, to address where each person is. God, that you meet them right where they are and draw them closer to you. Uh, to those who are doubting, bring clarity. To those who are struggling, bring comfort. To those who are apathetic, bring conviction. God, to those who are in ignorance, bring knowledge. Lord, we pray that you'll do this through the power of your spirit and the power of your word and do it all to the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, now is the time to grab those. If you don't have one, there is a blue one near you, somewhere in front of you. You can grab it. It will be on page 772 in it. Uh, we say this weekly, but just in case you're new, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we want you to have one. And we're going to talk a lot about God's Word today. So we want you to, to have one. We want you to possess one. So when you go out that exit, when you leave, then on that table, there's a stack of Bibles. Please take one. That's our gift to you. Um, we're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. Corinne and I, our youngest daughter is named Gemma. She's now four years old. And she's recently fallen in love with giving gifts. Uh, she just likes the whole process. She, uh, she likes wrapping the gifts. She really likes uh, uh, taping the wrapping paper. For whenever she gives you a gift, it's going to take you about 20 minutes to open it because there's going to be at least 60 pieces of tape on there. Uh, and she loves sitting there and staring at you and watching you open it. It's kind of creepy, but it's all right, you know. Uh, she loves just the whole thing from start to finish. But since she's four... Uh, and she likes the idea of giving gifts more than picking out gifts. I'm going to be brutally honest, and most of these gifts are just worthless. Um, she grabs a, a broken toy that she found or scribbles on a piece of paper, and every now and then she will take the time to, to draw you a picture of her and you, which is really sweet, but most of them, you, what, what am I supposed to do with this, right? But I love receiving those gifts because of who they're from and because of the joy they bring her. It doesn't matter the value of the gift. It's cherished because it's from her, right? And Today we're going to continue our journey that we've been in through the book of Acts. And much like last week, we're going to three, see three different stories. Three stories here in Acts 17 uh, that detail three different stops that Paul makes on this missionary journey. And at all three stops, there are varied reactions to Paul's teaching that, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And all these different reactions will come because each group is living for and found their identity in and put their faith in something different. And I'm going to argue that one rises above all the rest today. Because as we watch this play out, we're going, to, we're going to land today by talking about one of the greatest gifts you've ever been given. And this gift has value both because it's been given to you by God himself, but also because not just, it's, not just because it's from God, but also because the gift itself is one of the most valuable things that you've ever been given. And to neglect this gift, to ignore it, to be dismissive of it, is to do so at your very own risk. All right, so we've got to cover a lot of ground in Acts 17 today, so let's get to it. Acts 17 in verse 1 says this. When they'd passed through Amphipolis, I cannot, I, first service, I tried that word 10 times, right? And I can't get it. So that's a big, long A word. It's a city, okay? We don't need to worry about that. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. 
But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Okay, so we're told that Paul and Silas and Timothy and those traveling with them leave Philippi, which is where we, all the things we talked about last week happen. And they travel and they eventually end in Thessalonica. And, and most of these cities that you see in the book of Acts uh, were pretty major cities because what the Roman uh, government had done, built these major highways uh, that connected these cities. And a lot of them were also port cities. And, and Thessalonica is no different. Um, the area that it was in is, is still a major city today. It's the second most populated city in Greece right now. And as was Paul's custom, he would go to the synagogue in the city he was visiting and try to reason with folks there. Because his idea was this, that there should be common ground uh, with those at the synagogue and those who follow Christ. And, and, and what he'd tell them is this, that since Jesus is the Messiah, all the Old Testament that you guys worship points to him. Since Jesus is the Messiah, all the Old Testament ceremonies, all the Old Testament worship was designed to point us to him. Since Jesus is the Messiah, Paul could use everything that those at the synagogue believe in and practice and show that it was all to be about Jesus all along. And so this is what he does in Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue and he tells them how the Old Testament points to Christ, how the Old Testament prophets foretold that the, the Christ would suffer and that, the, and that he would rise from the dead. And then he tells them this Messiah, this Christ that all the Old Testament talks about, this is Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, prove it. He's the one that you've all been waiting for all along. And Luke tells us that some of the Jews, it's an interesting phrase, just some of the Jews realized that what he was saying was true and they give their lives to Jesus. But more interestingly, we're told that a large number of the Greeks who are described as God-fearing also believe in Jesus. But the majority of the Jews here at Thessalonica did not believe. They didn't rejoice. They didn't by what Paul was saying. They didn't surrender to Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that their unified reaction was one of jealousy. They were jealous, Luke says. Jealous of what? Who knows? Maybe it was all the attention that Jesus was getting instead of them. Maybe it was that people were now listening to Paul and it's not them. I, I think it was all those things and, and also this. Paul, in doing this, would, would, would correctly teach that Jesus had fulfilled the Mosaic law. And if Jesus had fulfilled the law, then all the ceremonial and traditional aspects of the law are no longer required. So all those ceremonies, all those traditions that had made those Jews feel Jewish, right? all of them that had made them feel special and unique and set apart, all the ceremonies and traditions that had, they had held dear for their whole life were having their necessity called into question. And the reaction to this is multifaceted. One, they don't want to hear what Paul's saying at all. They just completely reject the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah outright. Two, they get jealous over any attention Jesus or his servant Paul is getting. And because of that, they take it another step. It's not enough to ignore this. It's not enough to reject this. They're going to get rid of Paul. And so they round up bad characters, Luke tells us. They go out and find the sketchiest dudes in the city. And they tell them, you, you need to start a riot and they form a mob, and they go house to house, eventually arriving at a house of a man named Jason looking for Paul. And when they don't find him there, they throw Jason in jail for nothing. But they're just angry. They, they, they're threatened, and, and you can't even really find a good reason why. And so we pick up the story in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And so when night falls in Thessalonica, the believers there realize it's no longer safe for Paul and Silas to be here. They are being hunted down. 
And so under the cover of darkness, they sneak them out. And Paul and Silas leave this place as refugees, as ones escaping for their lives. And they make their way to Berea. And immediately you get a picture of why God chose Paul for this life. If you've been with us through the whole journey, you remember back in Acts 9, where Jesus interrupts Paul's life, knocks him to the ground and blinds him, and God sends Ananias to pray over him and restore his sight. And in that conversation with Ananias, God gives Paul a title. He calls him his chosen servant, his chosen vessel. And if you, if you, if you were with us up to Acts 9, everything before that moment in Acts 9 made you wonder, why in the world is God choosing this man for that job? But everything after Acts 9... Well, it gets a little more clear because brother's not right. Okay, think about it. Let's say you walked into one town and you went into the synagogue and you told the Jews that Jesus was the son of God. And their response to this is to grab the sketchiest guys in town, uh, to form a mob and go everywhere looking to arrest and probably kill you. And you sneak out under the cover of darkness, head down the first Roman road you see. And when you find the neighboring city, you, you say to your buddy, hey, I got a great idea. Let's find the synagogue here and do the exact same thing we did in the last city. You've got, you got to be a little off to do that. But you see, Paul is sold out for Jesus. He's sold out for the one who suffered for him. And so there's no cost. There's no risk that he won't endure in order to spread his name. And so he walks right into the synagogue in Berea and begins to tell them the same message. Since Jesus is the Messiah, your Old Testament points to him. Since Jesus is the Messiah, all your worship is designed to point to him. Since Jesus is the Messiah, Paul will use everything they believe in and practice and show that it was about Jesus all along. Only the Jews at Berea have a much different reaction than the Jews at Thessalonica. Luke commends them. He says they're of more noble character. And when Paul taught them about Jesus, they were open to it. They didn't immediately put up their defenses and reject it. Instead, they listened intently to what he said. And the best part is this. In verse 12, we're told that they went and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Man, I love that. That's, 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 uh, that's everything right there. You see what they're doing? They know the scriptures are the revelation from God. And so when someone comes along and starts teaching them about God, before they decide whether or not they should receive it or reject it, it has to pass this test. Does it line up with what God has already revealed to us? And Paul is talking about Jesus being the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus' life lining up with all these Old Testament prophecies. And instead of running him out of town, or instead of just believing him at face value, these Bereans were like, this sounds intriguing, but we need to go back and read those passages he's talking about and make sure all this lines up. And Paul's not going to be threatened by that at all. He would encourage it. Do you know why? Because true doctrine and true teaching does not fear inquiry. Since he's accurately teaching what is in the scriptures, he would invite that scrutiny because it will only convince them of the truth of Jesus. Jesus pulled this move a lot on a number of levels. In, in Matthew 7, he wraps up uh, the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous collection of teaching by presenting a challenge to everyone there. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you can base your life on anything out there other than me and my teachings and you'd be a fool. Or he says, you can base your life on me and my teachings and you'll be wise because when the worst storms of life come with me as your foundation, your foundation will stand firm. And I, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because what Jesus basically is saying there is try me. Still not convinced? Put into practice what I just taught you. Make me the center of your life and you tell me if I'm not better than everything out there. And that's, that's someone with extreme confidence in himself and what he's teaching. And Jesus is alone in being right and having that confidence. Can I just, make, can I just push pause here and make a quick personal appeal to you here? 
on behalf of myself and Adam and all of your Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders and small group leaders, it's basically anyone around here who teaches you, please, please, please check what we say with the scriptures for your benefit and for ours. Because James 3 says that teachers will be judged more harshly. So let's just work together and try and avoid that. We try to make this easy for you. That's why we put Bibles in the chairs. That's why we, we hand out Bibles for free if you don't have one. It's why we don't give a talk around here without referencing the Bible directly because we want you to know and see that we aren't giving you our opinion. We aren't giving you anything that we've come up with. We simply want to present to you what God has revealed to us in his word. And the second reason this is important is by doing this, these Bereans will trust Paul's messages because it lines up with the scriptures, not because it came from Paul. So this keeps them from elevating Paul to an unhealthy level. Their faith would be in Jesus. Their faith is in the word of God. Their faith is not in men. Again, personal appeal here. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in the word of God. Do not elevate anyone you see on this platform. Because the moment, the moment that you find any value in us, the moment you find any spiritual identity in in one of us, we're going to let you down. I will let you down. I promise you that. But Jesus won't. His word won't. Find your identity in them. Now look what happens next. This is an interesting little exchange. Verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. I don't have a huge point of those verses other than this. Religion makes you insane. I'm not kidding. When your faith is in tradition, when it's in ceremony, when it's in religion, over time, religion makes you crazy. And we've told you this a thousand times over here, but Jesus Christ did not come to establish a religion. He came to abolish religion. He came to make it irrelevant. Because all religion is is a series of beliefs and practices and ceremonies and efforts to appease God. It's us pursuing God. It's us earning God's favor. And Jesus came along and showed that to be the fool's play that it is. You can't ever get to his level of holiness, Jesus said. So he came and he lived that perfection that you and I have. And then he closed the gap between us and God by taking our price and dying on the cross for our sins so that if we give our lives to him, he makes us clean. He forgives our sins. He pays our price. We don't do that by being religious. He does that by being awesome. And Jesus pursued us to save us from religion because it's futile and because it makes you crazy. All you got to do is look at history. Some of the worst things that human beings have ever done to other human beings is done in the name of religion. And when people have wrongly turned Christianity into religion, they've played that role as well. Be wary of religion. Be wary of elevating tradition or background over Jesus. Paul learns again what he already knew. To attack religion and attack tradition is a dangerous game to play. It's one we absolutely must play, but man, do you get a response. And often an aggressive one. These these Thessalonian Jews, they're, they're literally pursuing him all around the Roman Empire, trying to track him down and destroy him. Paul, however, just keeps getting more opportunities. He goes from from Thessalonica to Berea, then he's sent to Athens. Now, Athens is the biggest city in Greece. It still is today. But at this time, it was the most liberal city in the Roman Empire. It just had a different vibe than all the rest. 
Athens was considered the birthplace of philosophy, and they're, they're proud of it. And you're going to see that play out here in Acts 17. They're very confident in their ability to think through and cover their bases. So they made a God to everything. I mean, any, seriously, anything that you can think of having a God for, they created one and they sacrificed to it and worshipped it. They even had multiple sites around the city where they built altars to an unknown God, you know, just in case they forgot one. There's an old Roman saying about Athens that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. And the Bible tells us that Paul was greatly distressed to see this in verse 16. And I really appreciate the work of the Spirit in Paul's life. And here's why. We know our mission. I mean, there's not a Sunday that goes by that we don't talk about what our mission is. Right? It's, it's been evident through the book of Acts right here from the start. The church's mission is to spread the name and the glory of Jesus to the whole world, leading people to trust in him for forgiveness and salvation. And we know that mission. We can know that mission by heart. But until we are greatly distressed, and we won't do a darn thing about it. Until our heart breaks for people who don't know him. Until we are moved to pray for and share with our friends and our family members and our coworkers, our neighbors and even people we don't know. It will remain this ideal that we wish we carried out but we never do. If you have a hard time sharing your faith, you need to pray and ask God to break your heart for people who do not know him. Don't underestimate how important this is. This explains why Paul was so intense. He was a man bent on saving as many people as he could because his heart broke when he saw people living in ignorance of the truth that could save their souls. We need to ask God to give us this burden. And we cast so many on him. Let's just take one from him. Paul starts in Athens the way he did in Thessalonica and Berea. He went to the synagogue and gave his normal appeal. But, but while he's there, Luke tells us that some philosophers catch wind of their discussion. And they're intrigued. Right? So they invite him to Areopagus, which is also known as Mars Hill. This was, a, this was a section on a hill that overlooked Athens. It just had a beautiful view of the city. And Luke will tell you in verse 21 that at that site, a bunch of people of Athens gathered there to talk about uh, and listen to and debate the latest ideas in religion and philosophy and science, etc. And Luke just really isn't that impressed, right? Because he mentions this is all they ever do. Kind of, he kind of sounds like a dad telling his son, go get a real job, right? But this group invites Paul to come and be a part of this meeting. And in verse 22, Paul takes advantage of it. And look what he says. Acts 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with its inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should, think, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's designer's skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of all this 
of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of Arabagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now listen, this is one of the most brilliant sermons ever given. If you go to the site of Mars Hill today, there's a plaque with that inscription of Paul's sermon there. And I wish we had time today to, un- to unpack this thing as it deserves, but we've got another focus today. But what I do want you to see is his approach. We've seen all the way through Acts that when Paul is in Jewish synagogues, he meets them right where they are. And what I mean by that is he uses their law and their Old Testament scriptures that they love to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And here at Mars Hill, he uses the religious culture of the place. He said, I noticed, I noticed your altar to the unknown God, and I'm here to cure you of your ignorance. God is not something that can be created out of stone or metal or gold, for God himself is the creator. God is the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else. And he determines when and where we live. And he does this so that we would have the best opportunity to reach out and find him, though he's not far from any of us. And now that Jesus has come and paid the price for sins, God commands that all people everywhere repent and turn to him. And the proof of this is the resurrection of Jesus, the single greatest trump card in the history of the world. Because think about it. If you destroyed any of those gods in Athens with a sledgehammer, could they resurrect themselves? Everything that that people live for today other than Jesus, does it have power over the grave? You see, when you line up with Jesus, you line up with the one who can do what no one else can because he is what no one else is. Now we've covered, right, these three cities because I wanted you to see the difference in these groups. At Thessalonica, you had devoted Jews who found their identity in their religion and their traditions. In Berea, you had people who based their acceptance and rejection of truth off what God has revealed in his word. So their trust was in God and his word. And in Athens, you have a group of people who trust implicitly in their own philosophy, their own religious bent, their own intellect. And Jesus breaks through every single one of them. We've said it before, he can't be stopped. But that said, you must see and you must admit that the responses in Thessalonica and Athens are much different than the response in Berea. Luke tells us in Thessalonica, it was the Gentiles, it was the Greeks, the ones not steeped in tradition that freely accepted Christ. There are only a handful of Jews that did. In Athens, it was a small number of people at Mars Hill that accepted Christ. As brilliant as Paul's sermon was, a revival didn't exactly break out. But at Berea, where they listened with eagerness and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true, we are told that many Jews and many Gentiles came to faith in Jesus. So this is where I want to take us this morning. There's something that you're living for. On top of that, there's a guiding voice in your life. There's a voice or voices that shape who you are. See, the reason that you make the decisions that you do, the reason that you talk the way that you do, the reason that you vote the way that you do, the reason that you spend money the way that you do, the reason that you care about the things that you care about and you pursue the things that you pursue and you believe the things that you believe is because there's something from which you are taking your guidance. And this, what we find here in Acts 17 isn't exhaustive, but it covers a lot of ground of what people put their trust in. That group at Thessalonica, their guidance comes from their upbringing. It comes from their identity as a Jewish male. It comes from their religion and their traditions. And anything that they deem falls outside of that perspective is to be rejected and likely even treated as a threat. In Athens, the trust was solely in themselves. 
They had this great confidence in their ability to reason and discover the latest trends in thought. And even in their religion, their trust was in their ability to cover every base. Let's make a God for everything just so we know we're good. And so their trust and their guidance all comes from within. This is a group of people who listen to themselves above all else. We have phrases for this today, right? Listen to your heart. Trust your gut. Do what you think is right. Or whatever else cheesy line we want to throw out that represents this type of philosophy. But here's the thing. The trust in Thessalonica and the trust in Athens are in the same thing. The focus of religion is always on self. It's about me doing what I need to do to appease God. And so when you attack that, you're attacking my ability to save my own soul. The focus in Athens is on self. I can discover truth by my own intellect. I can cover all my own bases. I can trust in my own wisdom. But in Berea, they didn't put trust in man. They didn't trust themselves. They didn't trust Paul. They heard what they thought could be truth, but before they declared it to be so, they went and checked with what God had revealed to them in his word. This is the challenge Jesus was making in Matthew 7. When he said that you can live your life as a person of wisdom or a fool. Right? Because no matter how we coat this, no matter what we call it, no matter what external layer we give to this, we are either trusting in ourselves or we are trusting in what God has revealed to us. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, and I believe as he writes this, he's thinking about his time in Acts 17. I think as he writes this, he's recalling this handful of really strange, bizarre, exciting collection of days that we read about this morning. And this is what he says. We're going to put it on the screens for you. 1 Corinthians 1, he writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And they wraps it by saying this, The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You see, for the rest of your life, the question that will constantly be laid in front of you is this. Will you trust in God's wisdom or your own? If you're someone who's banking on your own goodness or your own acts of righteousness to get to heaven, and God says to you in his word that you can never do that, you'll you'll never be good enough. But the good news is that Jesus came and did it for you and then paid your price on the cross, and all you have to do is surrender to him to receive eternal life. Then who are you going to believe You were God. And the question doesn't stop there. It's just beginning. Once you belong to Christ, you need to answer that question every single day. Engaged or dating couple, when God says in his word that you are to keep the marriage bed pure, that you are to walk in a purity uh, that is is counterculture until the day you are married. But in your mind and your wisdom, it makes so much more financial sense to live together while planning your wedding. And then you love each other anyways, right? Whose wisdom are you going to follow? Yours or the Lord's. 
Men, when God calls you to step up and be the spiritual leader of your home, to take ownership of that, to shake you of your apathy, and to pursue your children and wife every single day, when it says in the Bible that when you become a man, you put childish things behind you, but you want to sit on the couch or continue to pursue your hobbies above them, you want to play video games at the neglect of your children because it's who you are, or you need time for yourself, Man, whose wisdom are you going to follow? Yours or God's? Parents, when, when God calls you in his word, that you, it's your responsibility to hand down the spiritual truths of the Bible to your children. That you are the ones to instill in them a love for the church and a love for the word. When you are to model the dedication to the worship of Christ and being an active member of the local body, but you're more comfortable just letting the pastor or youth pastor or Sunday school teacher have all those conversations with your children? Or you don't want to force your teen to go to church if they don't want to. Or you're just more comfortable being passive and hoping that maybe someday what matters to you will matter to them. Whose wisdom are you going to follow, yours or God's? And the Bible says that all people have been made in the image of God. That every single soul has value. They all have eternal life, eternal worth, and they're all someone Jesus died for. But there's somebody who's harmed you and you want to hold bitterness against them. There's people who annoy you and you want to dismiss or criticize them. Or there's an unplanned pregnancy. And it might change the plans for your life. Or it might be an embarrassment for you if it's just easier to be rid of it. Then whose wisdom will you follow? Yours or God's? See, this question plays itself out in so many ways that we cannot cover them all. But in every decision, every action, every purchase, every priority you set, you make this decision. In this moment, will I trust what God has revealed to me to be true? Will I do what he says? Or am I going to go my own way? Because we are so skilled at convincing ourselves that somehow, right, somehow there's asterisks all over this Bible. So that when I read a verse that tells me something I'd rather not hear, Right, something that makes me uncomfortable or steps on my toes. There's a little asterisk by it and there's a footnote at the bottom that says, that's not for you, bro. That's for other people. Listen, I've never seen one of those in there. But I've lived plenty of times as if they exist. We must get to the point where we trust God's wisdom over our own. Because it's going to save our souls from eternal death. It will align us with the will of the one who loves us and created us. It will be for the betterment of everyone around us. It will lead to the most fulfilling life possible. And God has given us an immense gift, a great tool in this. And it's exactly what those guys at Berea used. It's the scriptures, it's the Bible, it's the word of God. The Bible is not a book. It's the revelation of who God is. Right? It's God revealing to us who he is. It's him revealing to us his wisdom, his views on life, and everything that we need to do in response to it. So if you're one of those that's swayed by culture, just study history for a little bit. The things that culture holds dear, the, the wisdom that, that culture has always held, the things that they value and devalue, that changes every 10 to 20 years. The world's wisdom can't keep track of what is wise and what isn't, and what is true and what isn't. But God's revelation, his word is timeless. It's why his word is and must remain the basis for everything that we do in here. And you need this word in your life. Listen to what I said. You need it. Not it'd be better for you. You need it. 
1969, Robert Sumner wrote a book called The Wonders of the Word of God. And in it, he tells this amazingly powerful story of a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion at his work. And this explosion left this man. His face was badly disfigured. He lost all of his eyesight and his hands were blown off. And this left him in this position where he could no longer read. And being a new Christian, one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. A few months later, he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. So hoping to do the same, he sent out for some books of the Bible in Braille. And when they arrived, he was crushed to find out that the nerve ending in his lips had been destroyed by the the explosion. He couldn't feel the Braille on his lips. But not wanting to give up, from time to time he kept checking, hoping that maybe, maybe the nerves have regenerated enough. Maybe he could feel it. And one day as he brought the braille to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters. And he realized he could feel them. That's when he realized, I can read the Bible with my tongue. And by the time Robert Sumner wrote his book, that man had read the Bible with his tongue all the way through four different times. I said, how do we get there? How do, we, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where the Bible is not just a book I read in church? Or it's not just something that I should read because I feel compelled to, and if I don't, I just feel guilty. How do we get to the point where if I had to lick the pages of Braille to read it, I would do so joyously? Well, we get there by realizing our need. We get there by elevating the word of God to the place it needs to be. By understanding that we will never grow in our faith. You will never overcome that habitual sin that keeps beating you. You will never experience life change. You will never know Jesus more. You will never experience life to the fullness. You will never know God's will for your life fully if you do not know the word of God. If we do not pursue it, if we do not immerse ourselves in it, it's really simple and it's really hard. It's really simple because of this. It's simple because most of the problems and issues that Christians face every day would be solved or greatly aided if they just dedicated themselves to spending time in the Word of God daily. And it's really hard because that's really hard to do. It's really hard because to do so, at the start, you have to ignore your feelings. Listen, let's just be honest. If it's hard for you to read your Bible every day, you're not alone. If you don't feel like doing it, you're not alone. But even in that, you have to face this question. Whose voice or whose wisdom will I listen to? Your feelings or God? I plead with you today, do the hard thing. It's going to take a little time, but over time, the hard thing will become easy. Because over time, as you invest in this word and you see the difference it makes in your life, as you experience victory over sin that's enslaved you for years, as you love your spouse more and more, as you love Jesus more and more, you begin to love the word of God more and more. And after a while, if you happen to miss it one morning, you feel thirsty without it. You will feel empty without investing in it because your soul is telling you you need it and you love it. And God has been so good to this place. We've, we've experienced a crazy, awesome growth. We've been able to, to make some really nice cosmetic changes that we hope enhances your worship. There's a lot of exciting things happening, but nothing, nothing will have a greater impact on this church and on this community and on your life than if we as a church unite behind this commitment that we will be people of the word. It's starting today. If it's already not your practice, we will commit to reading this word 
every single day and that we will do so as long as it takes to get to the point where it's a joy. And that when we read this word, we don't just read it and learn God's wisdom, we obey it. People of the word, read it and live it out. Jesus said you can base your life on anything you want. Anything you want. But just one will lead to eternal life. One will lead you to your purpose for existence. Only one will change you for the better permanently. Thank God for his word. Let's be a church who pursues it passionately with everything we have. Let's pray. God, far too often we simply overthink the challenges we face. Far too often, once we're out of uh, elementary, once we're out of Sunday school age, we think that, that our problems are just so complicated and so complex that, that we need all these different things to fix them when often it's just we need your word. We need to read it, we need to invest in it, we need to know it, and we need to imply it. God, help us to be people who are wise. We need people who stand on the rock of Christ in his word. So that when the storms of life come, and they come, Lord, that our foundation is firm. God, around this room, as as we wrestle with your wisdom or ours, God, if there there are things that we are thinking about, just just listening to our own gut. If we're thinking about taking the easier road today, God, convict us that your wisdom is timeless. Your wisdom is true. Your wisdom is always what is best. And Father, if there's one in here who who has tried, they've tried to play the game. Maybe they're here because they're trying to play the game. They've tried to to, to play the part and and be the churchgoer and and just be a good enough person. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll be okay with it in the end and they can get to heaven. God, I pray that you would convict them of your wisdom now. The only thing that they would hear today is Christ crucified and crucified because of them and for them. And they would surrender to him. I pray all this, Lord, in his name. Amen. Let's stand.